Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, and especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. As we do each week, I'd like to begin our program with a story that is based on faith Inform with imagination. The women came first to hear Jesus. The men were a short distance walking slowly behind them. This was unusual because they always came together. Jesus remarked to Joseph, a man who had just joined him, how strange it is that the women have come first. Joseph looked into Jesus' eyes and said, They came first, Master, because they wished to speak to you privately. Jesus nodded, affirming his words. One woman, an old woman who was considered wise and who looked her age, came ahead of the others. When she approached Jesus, she bowed down. Jesus shook his head and said, Woman, woman, you do not have to show me respect. Come to me, all of you. And then when the women gathered around Jesus, the old woman slowly raised her hand and the men who were with her from the village stopped coming closer to Jesus. She said, Master, I have a question to ask you. I am up in years, as you can well see. I've worked hard beside my husband and his brothers in the field. I've given him many children. There is great suffering among our people. What can we learn from suffering? If our Creator is so good and loving, why does He make us suffer when we bear our loved one dies, suffer when we bear children, suffer when a loved one dies, pain from our diseases, and suffer as our backs ache and our hands are torn from working in the fields? Suffer when there is no rain for our crops. Suffer when we watch our children make many mistakes in life. Jesus continued questioning for a while and then beckoned for the men to come forward. They came and sat with their wives and daughters. Jesus was silent for a few moments, looking at the small group of people in front of him and then said, In suffering we learn, and through pain we grow as we do in the experience of life. We are placed upon this earth to learn, to grow, and then to return home again to a place of everlasting life. Then Jesus looked down at his hands, touched the old woman's hands that were wrinkled and covered with many scars from hard work, and said, These hands have experienced much. Have you not shared what you have learned with others? The woman shook her head, And he asked, are you not 
considered the wise woman in the village. She smiled slightly and answered, Yes, Master. When many are in trouble or when the women are about to give birth, they call upon me. Jesus asked further, And you have learned much from them, have you not? She shook her head again, agreeing with him. Jesus continued, Life is a learning experience. Some have many problems to bear throughout life. At times we look at our neighbor and we see that their burden of pain and suffering is light and we question why. It is not wrong to question, but only the Almighty or Creator knows the answer. You have brought your family and friends to see me. You only wanted them to hear my answer. Consider this. Perhaps our Creator wants us to experience so much in life, but not to know His answer to why we suffer, why we have death upon earth. Then Jesus looked on and blessed the small group of men, women, and children, saying, In my Father's name I give to you a blessing of love, of hope, and of eternal peace. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in the introduction to his latest book, and I'll tell you why I'm emphasizing his latest book. It's part of a trilogy titled Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. And he writes, How exactly God uses suffering to shape us, purify us, and conform us more to the image of his Son is, to a great extent, a mysterious process. But the Scriptures as a whole, and my focus, text of 1 Peter, in particular, give us some good clues about how this process works. I hope you will come to understand better why so many sufferers declare in so many words, quote, I would never have chosen this trial, but I also would never trade it for an easier path, because through it, God has changed me for the better. The qualities we most admire in people are seldom forged in times of ease, but in times of adversity. All the heroes of faith suffered in some way, whether in an internal or external sense, chronically or as a result of a single crisis. Some suffered even to the point of death, while no sane person eagerly runs into the arms of suffering Believers in Jesus today often avoid it at all costs. Our most earnest prayers are too often, quote, Take this painful thing away. Use this for your glory. Keep me safe instead of embolden my faith in this danger or threat. This book takes a hard look at our perspective on suffering and challenges us as believers, myself included, to see it more as God would have us see it from an eternal perspective. Our guest this evening, then, is Dr. Kenneth Bowie. He is an author, a speaker, president of Reflections Ministries, Omnibus Media Ministries, and Trinity House Publishers. He is the author of over 50 books. In January of 18, we discovered his book, Life in the Presence of God, 
In 2016, he began a trilogy writing, or the title being Rewriting Your Broken Story. Uh, he is the author of those 50 books, and in, he teaches a weekly Bible and faith study at Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia, where he resides with his wife. Dr. Ken Boa, welcome to Amplify once again. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you again. Just a second. I'm having a hard time picking you up. Uh, let me... Okay. Oh, there we go. I have it now. Um, okay. I've had trouble with yes. this headset, I think. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. but, but, but how nice to have you back. When we, in 2016, I looked, at, I looked up the scripts that I have. And uh, we talked about the difference between a temporal perspective on life and an eternal perspective, that our story is not over at the end of this life. Everything that happens in life can draw us to God, that Christianity is trusting in a person, and Christianity, Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. And then just, uh, just uh, two years ago, when we talked about life in the presence of God, you suggested that we ask ourselves, what do you really want? Can I, in my ordinary life, reflect the extraordinary life of Christ? And we talked about how life is a process of becoming who Jesus has already made us, that God has given us an incredible capacity to set our minds and hearts on the spiritual realm, even while we live in this visible one. So I could go on and on with many uh, highlights. There was much more than that. Uh, finally, you say we have to trust God to teach us to see the way, the, the world his way. The main way is through the written word. So um, I, I, I can remember uh, some of that discussion. So it's, it's so nice to have you back. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about Jenny Abel, with whom you wrote this book. Yes, uh, thanks. Um, I did a series of... Um, 40 teachings on my Wednesday morning. I have three, uh, actually four weekly studies, but my Wednesday morning men's fellowship, I decided to go through First uh, Peter. And um, then we took, we made transcriptions of the 40 sessions that I did in the book of First Peter, in which essentially all five chapters allude to the problem of suffering. So it's really the Job of the New Testament. And Jenny um, took the manuscript that re really resulted from the transcriptions, took that content, and she's brilliant at reshaping it. That's what I call uh, content editing, where you put things, oh, this belongs there, this is over here, and then after that, another person will come and do, do copy editing and then kind of smooth it out. And so Jenny's been brilliant at doing that. And in fact, she and I have just signed up with uh, InterVarsity Press to do another book, which is going to be transitioning well, moving through the stages of life so that the best is yet to come. So that, that's a process we're working on now. But um, so that she's been terrific this way, and she works full time uh, with uh, with me. Um, you believe this is is just not another book of suffering. Why is that? Uh, essentially because other books try to do what's called a theodicy, to try to give an account for how it is possible for if, if, if God is good and if God is all-powerful, then he uh, and evil exists, how can you put the three together? And so 
we do that. We do discuss that in the last chapter. We decided let's make an appendix for people who do ask about the fundamental problem of suffering and pain. How can a good God allow the innocent to suffer? But that's not the, pro- pro- the purpose of this book. The primary focus of this book is to say that we are living in a soul-forming world. And that in this immersion in the soul-forming world, we are eternal beings having an earthbound embodied experience. And, this, and that we, especially when we understand that we are already seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in our deepest self, we have a new being, that we are already new creations. And yet in this world, we are called to become who we already are in our position. So we are becomers. And ultimately, God allows adversities to shape us and to use that as a crucible that, in fact, um, forces uh, the ore to be uh, purified and purged the hotter it gets and the dross rises to the surface and the goldsmith or the silversmith uh, skim off the dross. And the idea is that it's more purged, it's shaped. But the wonderful text that really synthesized the entirety of 1 Peter for me was 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while. I love that beginning. It tells us two things. It's not if, it's Mm -hmm. after. Suffering is not an elective in the university of life. It's a required course. But then he says, for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal, the contrast couldn't be clearer, glory, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In fact, I propose that to IVP after you've suffered for the, a little while as the actual title. But they came up with a far better one than, than that. But that's really where that, uh, the genesis of this project and uh, you believe that suffering has both a universal nature and is deeply personal, and that's true because uh, it includes your wife is part of your life, doesn't it? That's correct. And indeed, um, I believe God redeems what he allows in the life of, of one who loves him and who is called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 affirms that. But it also it is increasingly evident to me that the mystery we, got, we call God is so profoundly wise and uh, able to work things together in ways I can't even begin to uh, construe, so that the whole concept then is that even my mistakes, um, as well as the malicious intentions of others in a fallen world, even those things can be used ultimately and leveraged for good. So it's the alchemy of grace that transmutes the lead of suffering into the gold of glory. And that's really this mm-hmm. whole concept of the alchemy, the mystery of the metamorpho, the trans, transmutation, the transformation of one form into an entirely different. And that's the mystery that in which we're emerged in a journey in which the one who holds the galaxies and clusters of galaxies together is also the lover of our souls and the one who actually became an amphibious being with us so that he has one, one foot in heaven and one on earth. These things are astonishing me. To, uh, the more I look, learn about it, the more astonishing that the center of all things is a loving relationship, the, a, a community and a communion of love, a coherence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so even before matter, energy, space, and time were spoken into being, that he is relationship. And the concept, though, that he would create anything other than himself, think of this this way. Book one, book one is infinity and eternity plus nothing. That's the first book. 
And then book two, infinity and eternity plus you. How is this possible? Mm -hmm. There was a time when those things that we describe that we can't think outside of matter and energy, space and time, yet they were not because his, he spoke it into being. So it's a deep and profound mystery so that we're immersed in a journey, and the journey is to ultimately to know him and to become like him. So he's called us for a purpose. He knew us before we were even born. Uh, the imagery of Psalm 139, where he appointed all the days that were before us, and he has determined our, our paths in our lives. And so here we have the fundamental thought of a be- 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 the benevolent lover of our souls, the sacred romancer who woos us, pursues us, calls us. And when we respond, it's only because his, his grace was previous to our response. This, the more I think about it, the more astonishing and unique it becomes. That is, it's like uh, your wife telling you, your wife Karen, telling you that yes. she loves you or her children or your children. And uh, um, many years later, the words are still have are astonishing, still uh, have even greater meaning. We wonder how that that happens. And you write the bottom line is yes. that nobody escapes suffering, and the actual causes and forms of suffering are more varied and nuanced than we typically acknowledge. Only God knows the details of our lives fully. Only He sees the full picture of both our outward circumstances and inward conditions and intentions. Regardless of our particular experience of suffering, God can and does use difficulties for our formation. Let me let me just stop you there. Hold your thoughts because we just have 30 seconds before we take our next break. And I think there's not too much that we can say uh, in, in uh, w- about this particular topic, uh, especially when you talk about how, how mysterious suffering can be that— uh, if there is one topic every human being can relate to on some level, you write, it is suffering. And yet suffering is unique to every person, not only in its forms and causes, but in the way it is experienced. So we'll take this break and be right back. Welcome back to uh, Amplify. Let us establish our program here. Our guest is uh, Kenneth Boa. Uh, He's written a book, Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. The platform form, it is uh, 1 Peter 5.10, in which we read, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And so Ken writes that uh, pain can be a gift, that without it we would not know something is wrong, that it's a symptom of greater evil in a world God created to be good. And so we share in the sufferings of Christ himself that were undeserved. And so he wants to examine how God uses suffering that can either make us bitter or better, but it always changes us in some way. But the question he raises is the critical concern is how do we respond to it, isn't it, Ken? One of the things that I um, like to say to summarize our human condition as followers of Jesus is that we're no longer defined by the pain of our bounded past, 
but by the joy of our unbounded future. What I'm saying then is that if we now realize that the past is the material to shape us and to prepare us for our future in the Father's house, the wellspring of truth, goodness, and beauty, we will then see that those things in the past were not the things that defined us. Those are Mm -hmm. going to be gone. In fact, we won't even be able to remember it when the purification has been complete. But instead, it will be used as material by the grace of God to forge us and to draw us. I, I like to say that restoration requires wreckage. And anyone in building knows this. Suppose you were to go and visit a friend and you see that their kitchen is a complete chaotic mess. And at first blush, you might suppose that's the status quo. But actually, no, they're explaining that, no, we're, we're actually remodeling the kitchen. And here's the blueprints. Here's what it's going to look like. Now, the scriptures provide that blueprint. And we recognize that we are part of that building, that house, as it were, that's being restored and brought into full conformity with the image of his son in spite of the blast of the fall. And that requires record. We always know that. You have to get rid of these things. But ultimately, look what's going to last. Or the image that Jesus gives his disciples when he tells them that uh, you will suffer now, you will mourn, but then you will be, your suffering will be turned into joy. And he uses this beautiful metaphor of a woman who's giving birth and it that it is that thing that is grievous to us. But when the child is born, she forgets the pain because for joy that a child was born into the world. The amazing thing is that God does not uh, actually replace. Instead, he transmutes. The very thing that was causing her agony, that child, is the very source of her joy. And the suffering is only brief, a few hours of labor at most. But the joy is that of an eternal being. And the contrast couldn't be richer or greater. This is, I think, the, a portrait, a metaphor, an image of what God's bringing about in us as well. Use the image of a woman giving uh, birth, and uh, you use another woman among many other people in the course of the book, uh, Joni Erickson Tata. She experienced yes. what has been called the, quote, awful grace of God. Explain yes, a little bit what yes. she means by that. Yes. The awful grace of God, it is, it is in fact, a, a severe mercy that he loves us more than we want him to love us. Um, if we had our way, we would choose the lesser good, the way of safety, the way of apparent less pain. But because he loves us too much for something that's second rate, his love is so rich and so vast and so complex and so evident because of what he did on our behalf as the wooer and pursuer, the one who underwrote the cost of our own salvation, that here's one that I can trust in, in spite of appearances to the contrary. And so true biblical faith really is to trust God in spite of appearances and in spite of experiences and feelings to the contrary, to believe that he, he is who he is and makes sense, and that ultimately all shall be well. And that's why we're defined by that unbounded future then. So I think we're, we're really, in this world, the lens of adversity clarifies eternal truth. And he, so he uses these things to actually draw us into a greater richness, uh, an awful, severe mercy, the awful grace of God 
and it's the awful grace of choice and in the mysterious interface between divine sovereignty and human responsibility god's will is not the same as his desires in the awful grace of choice we're responsible for the degree to which they're congruent so all these things is such rich complexity we can hardly begin to imagine what is in the mind of the maker you write that uh the God of the Bible is rather a loving Father who desires a relationship with us. He's not just taking us somewhere, but is making us someone in the process. More yeah. than anything else in the world, he wants to make us like Christ. That's right. So that's his intention, Romans eight twenty nine, that we be conformed to the image of his Son. And it is through the adversity, so that's why Paul says, I consider, I, I therefore thank God for my tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about pr- proven character, and proven character hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. So he's not a spiritual masochist. He is looking through the tribulation, the adversity, to what the purpose is going to be that will endure, that will last. And so it is, James says the same thing, that where when you encounter various trials, you can count it all joy, not because you love the trials, but because of the joy of what they will produce, and that the, that the trials are of brief duration, but the character of Christ-likeness in thought and word and deed, that's going to endure. And I think each of us has been crafted by the living God to be unique in our personalities such that we reflect and refract the glory of God in the ways that no one else can do. So then the possibilities are utterly boundless in the communion of the faith. Um, you're right, we need the power of Christ living and working in us every day. God knows what is best, and we must trust him. And you also point out that comparison is the enemy of contentment. It is yeah. never wise to compare one person's trials to another's. Why is that? Yes, I, I, I like that phrase because, really, comparison to loser's game. If you compare upwards, you're going to be bitter, you're going to be resentful. Uh, you're going to be jealous. If you compare downward, you'll be you'll have hubris and uh, the arrogance of the supposition that you attained this. Uh, the, the true humility of uh, that drives uh, their the sense of the of the love of God and the trust of God is the realization of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that wasn't given to you? Then why do you boast as if it wasn't given to you? In other words, everything in life is gift and grace, everything. And so Ultimately, then, we are in the mind, we're in his hands, and the mind of the maker has a purpose for our lives so that we're not just random events, but rather we will be beings, eternal beings, who will forever uh, express and enjoy the um, love of God and be manifestations and reflections and refractions of the prism of his grace in the community of faith, in the, in the ecclesia, the, the, the ecclesial dynamics mm-hmm. of heavenly uh, relationships. So that I love the concept, you in me and I in you, and just as they are in us and we are in them, so they will be in me and I in you. And the mutuality that God has invited us, uh, Thomas Dubay, I think, put it well in, in the evidential power of God, we've been created and redeemed to the eternal ecstasy of interpersonal immersion in the triune Godhead, beholding infinite beauty face to face. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. You talk a lot about hope in the book also, living hope. You 
uh, describe it as an innate longing for eternity placed into our hearts by God. The God himself has placed uh, that hope. And uh, you point out that perhaps one of the most difficult aspects of suffering is not the pain of the moment, but the prospect of the pain continuing into the future. How long is this going to last? And so you write the living hope is the one source of hope that nothing on earth, not even the severest suffering can ever kill. It is the resurrection of Christ and the eternal life it secures for us. Only hope in Christ will never die. It grows with the passing of time. That is a great source of hope itself. Oh, it is a great hope, a sense of hope, and that there is a sense of hope that, the again, that transcends this earthbound process. And so hope doesn't disappoint. This, this is a hope that we will have. And this whole idea of, of faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And the reason for this is because faith is temporary. One day we will see him face to face. Hope is temporary because when you have that which you are hoping for, you no longer need to hope for it. But love will endure. You have a uh, quote of Henry Nouwen when you t- when you write in the chapter a, a present joy, and that in a sense all joy on earth is tinged with um, some level of sorrow. It's real, but it's it's imperfect, and only Christianity offers. Suffering is a means for bringing us closer to God through unity with the sufferings of Christ. I guess I wasn't, didn't think about it that way. Only Christianity offers suffering as a means for bringing us closer to God. Yes, and then let's add another dimension to that that Christianity uniquely provides. It is this, that when we consider the qualities we most admire in other people, heroic people, uh, whether in Scripture or in present times or in the past, what are the qualities we most admire? And whenever I ask an audience that question, I hear the same responses. Someone will say uh, courage. Another will say perseverance. Another might say integrity. Another may say humility. Um, and all of these qualities are admirable. But then I have to ask them, are any of these qualities you most admire ever forged in times of ease? Not a one. They are forged in the crucible of adversity. So you are becoming, he loves us more than we want him to love us. And that's why he would choose a greater good for us than we would have chosen for ourselves. Uh, I came I revisited a, a book by my friend Larry Crabb, and I love the way he put it in one of his books, The Pressure's Off. He said, most Christians would prefer the better life of God's blessings over the better hope of God's presence. Mm. Now, we're talking here about knowing him. It's not a sense of the tack-ons, but it is the ultimate relationship. Imagine that we were meant for that which is trans-temporal and trans-finite. And if that is what we were meant for, then any other good in which we fix our hope and our desire will let us down in the end. And so this is the whole idea when we see him, ah, he's the one, the fountainhead of the true, the good, and the beautiful. That concept so enriches us, or should, that we then live with a sense of hope that that's what's going to endure, and he's purging and purifying and and bringing us into a state of Christ-likeness, and his love is so great that he won't be satisfied with mediocrity. On uh, page 65 of your book, uh, uh, titled 
um, shaped by suffering. You write that one of the best uh, lines that uh, you've ever seen of uh, the biblical concept of suffering is by a sermon by uh, Jonathan Edwards, and um, it was titled Christian Happiness, and he lays out three truths. Why should Christians be happy? And you, you tell us that by happy was speaking of deep happiness, and these are the three points. I'd like you just to amplify on them a little bit if you can. Number one is our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. And the best things are yet to come. And you believe these same three points are found in 1 Peter. Precisely so. All three are there. So our bad things will turn out for good. And there are numbers of texts that tell us, again, he redeems what he allows. And he's allowing it for a purpose that is a richer goal, a richer picture, richer tell us or end than we would have ever imagined or would have been willing to even hope for. It's more profound than that any nothing less than christ likeness and so there's this so he then he is going to work things together so he uh, redeems what he allows and so our bad things will turn out for good but they work together for good for those who love them but then the second is that our good things can never be taken away so that that which we have in him that joy cannot be defeated by or taken away by any earthbound uh, uh, loss in spite of the pain that's involved. And I never diminish the pain, but I, sig- I, I say that ultimately, though, this, there is a purpose underlying that. So we recognize then that, that the bad things will be um, even, the, 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 the good things that can't be taken away and the best is yet to come because we can hardly even begin to imagine what he's got in store for us. I haven't seen or ear heard or has entered into the heart of man all that he's prepared for those who love him. So again, if we think about that, we, as Augustine put it, we have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And so when we think about he is the heart's desire and aspiration, whatever good would you seek or pursue? So it's a matter of cultivating and curating an eternal perspective in this temporal arena and realizing that he is, in fact, bringing us um, to this purpose of becoming conformed to the image of his son. And I tell people, how much more suffering will we have to endure? And the answer is going to be only a few decades more at the max. Then after that, there'll never be any sorrow, no no death, no pain, no suffering. It'll all be done away with. Can you manage that one day at a time? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Can I learn to lean into him on this day? And by the way, a key thing, add him to your story. Add him to your story in the past. He was there. And when we take our worst painful memories and invite him to see him and imagine that he's there, and he was, we're not making it up, add him to your story in the present and add him to your story in the future. And so with the way we're looking at uh, suffering, um, it it is different from the way in which uh, the world does typically. Uh, Is it wrong to hope and pray for healing or relief from suffering in this life? It's a good question. Um, I've come to, cons- to see prayer more and more 
as actually aligning my will with God's rather than trying to get him to align his with mine. Many people think of prayer as a kind of a strategy session between ourselves and God in which we uh, get, tell him uh, what our best interest looks like and then give him generous suggestions as, ha- as to how and when to pull it off. And then we, I think of that our country and Western line. Thank God for unanswered prayer. You look back at some of the things you prayed for, you would have been ruined. So, again, it's a question of trusting in one. You don't understand where he's taking you. But it, here's the thing. Can I trust him in the dark with what he's revealed in the light? And what has he revealed in the light? What's he like? Let, let me show you Jesus. Let me show you the one who never invites us to do something that he hasn't already done first for us to love one another, to serve one another, and all those dynamics. Here we have, then, the high priest who has suffered in all ways as we are, all kinds of temptations, yet without sin. So we have a a place to go to in time of need, someone who knows us, cares for us, and understands the solidarity with the human condition. This is an incredible, again, I can't stress how unique it is. In fact, I'm working with a book on a, with a, the head of the philosophy department at Westmont College on the uniqueness of biblical theism. It's a robust approach to Christian apologetics, and it hasn't been really teased out as much as it should be. It's utterly unique in all respects. Mm. Look, look forward to that. You uh, also write that uh, uh, the presence of joy in our lives doesn't mean the absence or disappearance of grief and sorrow. Uh, because right. Christian joy is divorced from our circumstances. In fact, it can and often does coexist simultaneously with sadness, grief, and even distress. That's right. That is right. And that's where you made me just then think of uh, Paul and Sinus, uh, Silas in the uh, Philippian jail. And here, after being flogged, being beaten by that uh, bundle of rods that the, that the soldiers would use, humiliated in this way, they are now in a, thrown into this inner prison, and it, around midnight they're singing hymns of praise because of the fact that they are now counted worthy to, be suffer, to suffer for his, his sake. As Paul said, you will suffer many things for my sake. But the reality that God, though, gives us the power, it's not theoretical. This is another one of the uniquenesses. He not only tells us how to live, he empowers us to do it through the indwelling Spirit of God. And so as we invite the Spirit to guide our prayers, going back to your, the question that you were raising before, what I want to do then is to allow my prayers to, be ra- to recalibrate my desires with his desires for me, rather than trying to manipulate right. him and tell him, I don't know what my best interests look like. In fact, there are two things I have to believe in order before I'm going to really Ken, obey him enough. Ken, hold, up, hold those two points in mind. We need to take this okay, break, sure and then we'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> 